Yeah, normally I just like roll into the conversation, just edit into it, but this is a different episode for us because Ryan and Adam are not here. And today I'm joined by Chris and John of the Pink Smoke. Thanks for having us. And thanks for getting rid of, you know, the dead weight. This is a lean episode. It's just the leanest cut possible. And we don't, we don't need those other guys. We got the leanest cut. Just goes to show that this movie still scares people. You know, they're not willing to talk about it. Oh my God, has it been an accident? Is my wife hurt? She was supposed to arrive last night, never showed up. Hi. Come on, come in the house. I'll bet you're hungry. <laughs> oh my God. Georgina has it in her head, but you are her sister. I really need to see your husband, okay? Roy's working on your car. Don't lock me in this room. I'll do anything you want. But you gotta let me out. You gotta see my little girl. Just let me out of this house! Got your trace back on your suspected family slayer. Was it a woman with a little child? A, a little girl? Mr. Scudder told her to take old Highway 50. What makes you think you're gonna find your wife and your daughter around my dirty old garage? So yeah, you guys picked the movie out, The Matting, 1995, directed by Danny Houston, a movie which I had never heard of, even though like that was my, that was the golden era of me watching the movie channel, Showtime, HBO all night, just watching every stupid, you know, thriller, horror movie, anything with a hint of violence or nudity I would watch, but this movie completely slipped my radar. I'm curious how you guys found it. How did you see it the first time? John Cribbs is the world's biggest Mia Sarah fan and is a Mia Sarah completist. And then he recommended it to me. That is that a fair description, John? It's true. I'm a big fan of Time Cop's Mia, Mia Sarah. Mia Sarah yeah. of Time Cop Boobariety. Yeah, she's in uh, Legend. That's her first movie. She's in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which is like her iconic role. Not to say Time Cop isn't, you know, iconic. It's but... the masterpiece. Yeah, I mean... 80, 85, 86 is her heyday. I think it's a very limited window to describe as Mia Sarah's time at the top. She was also in a Stuart Gordon TV film. People don't remember that. Which one? The show, like on Showtime? Like a Masters yeah, it was, of Horror? Uh, yeah, something. No, it wasn't Masters of Horror, but it was on HBO or something, or Showtime maybe. Uh, called, uh, oh man, it has a very generic title to it. I wanted to say Daughter of Darkness, but obviously that's not correct. Something yeah. of darkness, though. It's a very generic title. But yeah, it so, does have Anthony Perkins. All right. That sounds pretty good. I mean, I am a big Stuart Gordon fan. I mean, even his weakest movies are usually better than... I mean, I'm I'm assuming it's better than The Matting. Not to say I don't love The Matting, and I know you two are big fans, and I don't want to, like, insult you, but... I'd have to say this is the worst movie I've ever watched for the podcast. One of the worst movies I've ever seen, but there's here's, a lot. Here's the thing. Words like better, this is, worse, this, don't, yeah. don't apply to the bad thing. In my this, this is also, we are on a religious mission right now, and we are either going to convert you or annihilate you. And you need to understand that at the top, that you will be burned alive in the holy light of the maddening. And I'm just, this is a warning to your listeners, listeners as well, that, that this is not really a, a negotiable thing. It's an article of faith. So we're going to put it out there in those terms. Yeah, I'm sure that's what 
I'm sure that's how Danny Houston ran the first production meeting <laughs> because <laughs> I feel like Danny Houston's the key to understanding this movie because no, Andrew Niedermeyer, but go on. Okay. I'm not familiar with Andrew Niedermeyer. I did Niederman. see Niederman. What did I Niederman. Mean to say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have the author book. of uh, play baits. You have the, the novel. Maddening is based on. I do. I have it right here in my hand. I love the cover. I saw it on eBay as I was checking out, like, I was like, who wrote this fucking shit? But I'm assuming the novel has to be better than this fucking movie. There's no, no way. No, that's an incorrect assumption. <laughs> okay, let me lay out what this film is at the start so your audience isn't too lost, because I'm assuming people aren't going to understand what it is, right? Yeah. And what this movie is, what makes it so great is that it is VC Andrews for dudes. And now, John... What do you got to do if you're going to make something more appropriate for dudes? You're going to take VC Andrews. You're going to make it for dudes. What do you got to do? You got to get Burt Reynolds. You'll put Burt Reynolds in it. That is exactly what you fucking do to make it VC Andrews for dudes. And the VC Andrew for dudes subgenre might only be this movie. This might be the only one in existence. And as you know, John and I are awesome, massive uh, uh, fans of hearing about VC Andrews novels, but not reading them. So this is exactly what we both needed in our life. Well, explain the the VC Andrews connection to Andrew Niederman because he has a connection, right? Absolutely. Yes. What happens is VC Andrews writes six or seven books. They're all huge bestsellers. They're of course Flowers in the Attic and sequels to that. And My Sweet Audrina is one of her famous books. And then she gets sick. And it's going to die. And so they hire Andrew Niederman. And the details of this are fascinating. They, they just tell him, just keep writing V.C. Andrews books for the rest of your career. That's not going to be a problem, right? And he's, his response is not, uh, that's a really weird thing for you to ask me. His response is, sure. But he also, he adapted her <laughs> Flowers in the Attic as a theatrical play, right? A stage show? Oh, I don't know if that's that how it got started. That, that would make sense. But, uh, he I, he had the same agent as her. And okay. when she was dying and getting ill, the agent sort of cut her off from her family and worked out a deal with her without her permission, even though she was supposedly not in a state where it is possible uh, or should have been making these kind of decisions. And she started giving interviews where she said she had thousands of pages of semi-finished ideas and unfinished novels that now were going to continue on and continue being published even after she had died, that this work was going to be worked up. And it seems like that's not true, that, that Niederman just sort of started wholesale with this agent writing this shit. And that's a yeah. common, this is a common thing with authors and artists. Like I know Peter Max apparently is like blind and apparently there is like a, he's that pop artist who did the love logo in Philadelphia or yeah. did all those like awful kind of Andy Warhol looking paintings. But he has like, his son has an army of hobos who just, churn out Peter Max paintings and then Peter Max walks in blind and just signs them Max and yeah. they sell them. So That's a good example. Going all the way back to the Oz series, you know, L. Frank Baum only wrote half of those and then another woman came in and took over and, you know, published them obviously under the name L. Frank Baum. Yes. So it's been in practice for quite a while. And then what would you say are the, like the keystones or the hallmarks of like a V.C. Andrews novel? Because I only know Flowers in the Attic, like, 
I've never seen the movie. I never read the novel. Um, it's kind of beyond my time, you know. It's they're they're genuinely unpleasant and depraved, um, and gothic type stories that pretend they're for teenage girls and are like older per- people, right? Therefore, this has to be for an older audience. I get the feeling. No, it's like- no, the like perfect age to get into VC Andrews is when you're like 15. Mm. That's like the perfect age, even though they're full of like rape and incest and pedophilia and depravity. They they sort of pretend like they're regular thrillers, but they're as, you know, they're as depraved as, you know as as a, a necromantic or something they are just really genuinely gross and weird and overheated and they somehow end up getting marketed as ya novels right and, very and- interior as well as another thing like flowers in the attic is a story of children who are literally locked into an attic until they die like they're trying to get rid of them to claim an inheritance so the Maddening, obviously, is a very interior film as well. This f- weird, fucked up family living in this house, yeah. trying to maintain some kind of a normal normalcy when their situation is more than you know, completely abnormal. Yeah, yeah. I, I, the, 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 the V.C. Andrews novels are about like somebody trapped in a house and they have brittle bone disease. Right. That's and like that's, what a V.C. Andrews story is like. And the movie, I feel the movie, the closest to Maddening, um, like the movie it feels closest to is whatever happened to Baby Jane. Yeah, that's my comparison. But, but Spider trashy, Baby, I would say, but that's a good Spider, Spider Baby. Baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, though, that's this is like a late '60s kind of thing, like a mid '60s kind of like trend that was going on. She's writing. I, I would say I think of her as being a very '70s type of author. '70s. She right. she has. Uh, I would compare it to when they were even making TV movies like The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane. There was this weird era where there were things getting rated G and PG, like Food of the Gods or something that you watch and you're like, who the fuck thought this was appropriate for like family TV daytime type audiences? And she belongs to that, that sort of world of the 70s, like really well, depraved stuff sort of getting mainstreamified in a way that it's not even now, you know. In the 1970s, it's very common to have rape as a subplot in a PG rated movie. Like Billy Jack has a rape scene. Yes. Yeah. It's it's like they just always go there. It just is constantly yes on the table. I'm, a TV movie an ABC TV movie would be on the table. It's just yes. Part of that is that the the um, cultural shift where the redefinition of rape going from being a property crime where a woman's body is the property being damaged to a crime of consent really happens in earnest in the 60s. So the 70s is really the first time when rape is understood as it is in a modern context. And it does seep into popular culture, those depictions of it, because it's this new definition of it, this culturally new definition, where it's a violation of of uh, feminine, of woman's autonomy and male too, although the, the redefinition really occurs through through the feminist groups in the 60s, which is all and a Charles good thing. Bronson's honor. 
Yeah. Yes. Well, his family is getting damaged. That he belongs to the old school. This is a violation of the family unit. This is a crime against chastity. Mm-hmm. I would say that Bronson's stuff belongs to the uh, old definition. You know, when it was, you know, it's sort of just the history of the definition of rape goes from it's a property crime, right? committed against the head of the household to it's a crime against chastity itself, which is committed against the state and why the state should be involved to it's a crime committed against women themselves. And it's a violation of consent and autonomy. And in the seventies, it's getting explored. And I think that people haven't said, wait a second, this shouldn't be in kids films. You know, (laughs) wait a second, this should not, this is a really fraught thing. I think people are uh, very casually exploring the new definition because they don't understand the weight of trauma that it holds under that definition, you know? Right. And there's also a very, um, there, it's not like the eighties where kids films become their own business. Kids movies were, are, were the, were often, um intertwined with exploitation movies anyway like a movie like the doberman gang which is a kids movie kind of feels like an exploitation movie or like what's the one with the 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 little people robbing gang that's an aip movie where they're all i don't know they're all little people it's like an and they're robbing banks (laughs) are you sure you're still not thinking of the daring dobermans the world-renowned little cigars who the hell are you anyway? I'm Miss Tits and Ass. I don't know what you guys use for a pillow, but I find these to be the greatest. I, but, uh, I am not familiar with that. <laughs> but that's the kind of shit they would make. It was like, we're going to get a bunch of little people. They're going to rob banks. It's for kids. Yeah. It's like, yes. hey, this is not a movie for kids. This is, um, this like is just exploitation. Movie. Yes. Yeah. And and VC Andrews is from that that mindset that sort of era of uh it would be so outlandish to put these books in the hands of of young adults these days it would just it would be she would get canceled she'd get completely canceled wokeism gone awry no it just it's it wouldn't even be on the table but it was sort of pervasive and you know i as a kid definitely knew it's sort of a rite of <laughs> rite of passage all of the girls around middle school age would get a hold of these books and like pass them amongst each other and they'd tell you about them and you'd be like what the fuck you know that's that's the vc andrews experience is a is a 14 year old girl telling you about it and you being like what the fuck what yeah, is the, this? The, the perspective, though, of like of a VC Andrews protagonist is that she's kind of going, she's she's growing as a woman, but like in this really traumatizing, fucked up environment. And like yeah. you said, turning that into a male version of it kind of harks back to that idea of rape being, you know, a crime against someone's property, because here we have to have the damsel in distress in the dungeon and the the knight has to show up and and save everybody, you know, it kind of has to take that form. Right. And the, and like you said, the way they made it male centric was to cast Burt Reynolds. Yeah. To make, to make this a Burt Reynolds movie. Now, Burt Reynolds. Well, also, they also got Josh Mostel, which makes it pretty dude centric too, as the, as the white knight who comes in and his Hawaiian shirt, his pastel. Okay, Josh Mostel is Zero Mostel's son, correct? Yeah, this and is Zero a Mo- very... Yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, and Zero Mostel's in the producers as, uh, what, the the sidekick? He's the funny... 
he's the Zero he's the main guy. He's yeah, he's the, the main guy. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, yeah, Josh Mostel plays a cop, a detective. Yeah. If for Chiki listeners Ross. who don't know, Z- Josh Zas Mostel is most famous as the uh, principal in Billy Madison. If you recognize him, yes. you'll recognize him as the the secret mm. masked wrestler from Billy Madison. He's also in City Slickers as one of the Ben and Jerry's kind of guys. Yeah. And um, also in this movie is Angie Dickinson, who I think if you get Burt Reynolds, you get a discount on Angie Dickinson. I think that's kind of like a, you know, like a two for one. I think she was just hanging out at Burt's house at the time, right? Probably. And he'll just turn to her and, hey, you want to be, you want to do this movie with me? Sure, Burt, whatever you want. She actually, I, I, on I, Bert's. Florida property, but go ahead, Chris. Sorry. No, I heard, I heard this is off the record from somebody familiar with the situation that she did this movie because she was like working through trauma with her own daughter who was severely disabled when she was born and had problems her whole life. And her daughter actually eventually killed herself. Right. And that like something about this, like spoke to her as a script that it wasn't like a paycheck thing. She like came out of semi-retirement because it like got it. it it's hooks in her, which is fucking horrifying to think about. Jesus, that's, I was going to make a joke about how she read the script and thought it was brilliant, but it turns out it's true. See, the other thing I feel about this movie is that. Well, it's more hit- like she read the script and was like, I too want to murder my child, which is fucking <laughs> horrifying to think about. Well, I mean, you know, she's an actress. She's got a schedule, you know, having a disabled child was probably very difficult for her. Yeah. So Um, she apparently, by all accounts, she actually loved her daughter and was incredibly supportive of her daughter. Just for the record. (laughs) Sanji Dickinson. She's a queen. Yes. But uh, I feel like a big element of this movie is it's like actors gone amok. And that usually happens when an actor directs a movie and it's weird with Danny Houston because he wasn't much of an actor at this time. He was a director. Like he, yeah. He made what Mr. North he made. Yeah. Becoming Colette with Matilda May, the great Matilda May. He went to film school in England, right? He's an actual, his father is one of the great directors in movie history. Yeah. I mean, you know, his father's John Houston is half sisters, Angelica Houston, just for people who aren't aware. Yeah. So he, this movie definitely, I feel like this is his last big hurrah. And after that, he kind of starts showing up as a character actor. And then his big breakthrough is Ivan's Ecstasy, the Mike yeah. or uh, Bernard Rose movie. And Ivan's Ecstasy got amazing reviews when it came out. People were saying, like, you have to see this Danny Houston performance. This is an amazing film. It's from the director of Candyman and A More Beloved. And it's low budget, it's shot on mini DV. Peter Weller's cool. This is like the the real story of Hollywood. And I actually bought it on an import DVD because it had so much hype. Yeah. And are you guys, what do you guys think of that movie? It's fine. I like it's, Bernard Rose in general. I, I think it's fine. Marcus Penn is always trying to push that one on me. That's, that's a Marcus Penn favorite, Ivan's Ecstasy. And I'm always like, quit trying to sell me on this. It got a lot of hype and... The thing is, Danny Houston, after that movie, became a very in-demand character actor, right? Like, he's now in everything. He's in TV shows. He's in Wonder Woman. He's in big-budget movies, low-budget. Yeah, he did uh, 30 Days of Night. 
He's always hey said, I set off to be a director and accidentally became an actor. It's like his quote on the subject. Because he's a naturally charismatic actor in person. He just seems to play this devilishly charming type of guy very well. He can kind of do it in his sleep. Yeah. But as a director, he seems to have no idea what he's doing. I mean, this... Well, have you, seen, whole, have you seen his other movies? I haven't seen Mr. North, but I have a, I have a feeling they're at least better than this one. I have a feeling this movie is tension between him and Burt Reynolds and him kind of going like, what did I get into? I'm just letting, this is just a boat going down the river. And I feel like this is one of those movies where he didn't even edit it. Like, I feel like this is like a low budget kind of movie where the director is just, it's kind of half, it's kind of half as hard as into it, but I think everybody's going nuts when I watch this. I feel like everybody's overacting. It's definitely a movie where it feels like it's on. Nobody feels like somebody's in control of this, which is one of its best qualities to me is it doesn't feel like anyone's in charge of it. uh, Even just to when it cuts between the two stories. So the story of the movie is uh, Mia Sarah and her daughter are, are angry at her husband played by Brian Wimmer because he works too hard. He missed the first day of kindergarten. So she's going to go stay with her sister. She goes to a gas station run by a metalhead and Burt Reynolds. And Burt Reynolds like, why don't you take this shortcut to your sister's house that presumably you've driven to a billion times down here in Florida. She takes the shortcut. Her car breaks down because Burt Reynolds, he's tampered with it at the gas station. He picks her up and he's like, hey, my house is right up the street. Come stay with me. And then she becomes imprisoned in this house with Angie Dickinson, who's Burt Reynolds' wife, their daughter, who's a, a real mean little girl. And they end up imprisoned in this house. And the parallel story is Josh Mostel as a cop who's investigating the disappearances and the sister of Mia Sarah and her husband sort of interacting with the cop and Brian Wimmer as the husband. Uh, And those two, that subplot feels like it was filmed on a different planet than the rest of the movie. Everything about it, the color schemes, the blocking, the locations. To me, I agree with you. It feels like who was making any decisions on this because the, the, the different aspects of these movies if you told me, like you're saying that he didn't edit it, I would believe it. If you told me he didn't film any of that subplot and it was added later, I would believe it because it's so different than the rest of the film. And that's that, that's a common occurrence of uh, straight-to-video movies. And I, I think this was maybe had a tepid theatrical release planned. No, no but, way. But ETV all the way. Yeah, because yeah, like, Burt Reynolds is a movie. It released, I think, two years after they shot it, too. So. Yeah, Burt Reynolds <laughs> is not a movie star at this point. This is this is like where you go after Cop and a Half. This is like ebb tide of exactly. his career. This is the movie that signals you are not a movie star anymore. You don't matter. So it wasn't getting put out for this reason. This is but even after like, a, like Evening Shade got canceled, I think. Yeah, and this is Trimark, which is a kind of logo you would see when you watch an extremely shitty DVD at your dad's house or something in the nineties, like, or on cable, it'll, it'll just have a big Trimark logo. And you know, it could be good. It could be bad, but it's probably not going to be great or it's not going to be, I don't know. It's not going to be, 
yeah, like it's not going to win Best Picture. It's not going to even be nominated for anything. Unless, Unless it's the maddening. Yes, in which a case. Movie where one thing you haven't mentioned in the plot, Burt Reynolds is uh, suicidally is his... guilty over murdering his baby boy. Right. And is this the first time he's played a villain? I don't know enough about Burt Reynolds, honestly, to tell uh, you. It, I mean, it's, is Roy Scudder the villain? Is Roy Scudder the villain is the first question we yeah, need he, to ask he, he about this film. rape against Mia Sarah. <laughs> yes, but he's very sad. He also murders his baby in the crib because it's given yes. him problems. <laughs> I just think you're not willing to understand Roy Scudder in the own terms that he understands the universe. Again, I think that you're too caught up in good and bad to be thinking about this movie properly. I think understanding Roy Scudder be- goes to the Nietzschean level of beyond good and evil is what I think when discussing what happens. Well, my mind's film. open. Well, the only thing I, you need to understand about Roy Scudder is he's got a cop, cock-blocking ghost dad hanging out in the house. Played, <laughs> played by the by great me. William Hickey. Well, what you waiting for, boy? Get it to him. Shut up, old man. Keep real pretty, Roy. Real soft and pretty. Go away, old man. What's the matter? Are you afraid you'll make another idiot, baby? Taker, you'll never get another chance like this. Georgina doesn't want you. I first saw William Hickey in Baby Talk, one of the shittiest yeah. sitcoms ever made. It was when Look Who's Talking Baby came out. Talk, sure. When Look Who Talk, Look Who's Talking came out. Not only was there a Look Who's Talking sitcom, there was a copycat sitcom called Baby Talk, and one of them, George Clooney's in. I think it's baby talk. Baby talk was so awful that the entire cast changed the second season. And even as a child of six or seven years old, I knew I was watching complete garbage. <laughs> That's funny. He's also in the producers with zero Mostella. Just realized Josh Mostel's father. Of course. He's like the first, the first thing I saw him in was wings. That's what I remember seeing. The sitcom. <laughs> the sitcom wings. Yeah. Is that he played a very, you know what I love about William Hickey is he in 1978, he's in Mikey and Nikki playing an old ancient guy <laughs> his entire career. He was only like in his 60s when he died. You would think he was like 80 or something, but he played an, an, the ancient old guy. Right. And we have to a million things. He's also a Nightmare Before Christmas. That's probably his most well-known thing for like younger or Christmas vacation. But yes, something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that voice. You know that voice. It's William Hickey. He plays um, a very obvious ghost. It's not a ghost, or it's a figment of Burt Reynolds' imagination. It's definitely a ghost because after Roy Scudder dies at the end, spoiler everybody, we still see him in the window. He's definitely a ghost. <laughs> right. You're you're right because Let me put if that was to a, rest. If he was a figment of his imagination, and Burt Reynolds, uh, spoiler alert, dies at the end, and he's in the window, whose hallucination is that? A dead person's? It's a ghost. Exactly. It's He's a literal a ghost. ghost. Like I was saying, like Brown it's a Bunny. Go- it's a, a ghost. secret ghost movie. It's a ghost dad. Right. It's a ghost dad. We got another ghost dad. Cock-blocking ghost dad is what I'm saying. So for, for me, there's so many awful scenes in this movie, but the, the, the scene that really cemented like immediately, like this, it's like when you watch a movie, it's like, all right, it's like going on a road trip. It's like, all right, everybody's 
put your seatbelt on, you know, put your Well, nothing on. makes a trip better than a big old moon pie. He, I love how he says it like a threat. Nothing better than a big old moon pie. And then later he says, and then later in the swamp, he says, ain't nothing like stepping on a custard pie. Uh, ma'am, this is Mr. Scudder. He owns the station. That's car. Very rare. Want some? No. This was my father's. Oh. Sentimental about your father? Me too. Look here, Truman. Two little dolls. I bet you one of them talks. What's your name, honey? Samantha. Samantha. That's a pretty name. What we got in there for Samantha to eat? Yes, sir. Got some moon pies, some Tijuana Red Hots, a sticky caramel chunky cluster chocolate covered nougat bar. You know something, honey? Nothing makes a trip better than a big old moon pie. Anyway, his accent. Threats. Well, yeah, Burt Reynolds' accent is terrible, but Burt Reynolds is also the, the best thing about the movie, right? He's the most charismatic person in he's the movie. He's a movie star. He's a fucking movie star. You watch him and he's the only one who should be a movie star of all of he, these people, Angie Dickinson included. And um, Mia Sarah is actually pretty good in it. Like, it's nice to see her try or like yeah. do something different. Like, she's trying to be an actress. Yeah. Um, she wants this to work. I feel, I think she was naive and thinking like, well, maybe this might be good. Like, Maybe this Burt Reynolds I, I think by 95, Mia Sarah is taking whatever job is offered to her. I don't yeah. I don't think she's saying, I don't know. Let me see the script for the maddening first before I say yes or no. But um, her it's the scene that really sticks out to me that this movie is going to be bad is when we see her sister and her sister's husband upside down in exercise equipment after the husband is unable to find her. He calls the sister and goes like, where is she? And the husband answers the phone. He's upside down stretching. And he goes, you answer it. And then hands the phone to the sister and the sister's upside down. And it's just like, you know, of course she's like, she's finally leaving you. You're a terrible husband. Look, you guys seem to have all the lines memorized. Phil the, the, the new age bozos. Yeah. The, the Brian, the Brian Wimmer stuff who plays the husband, Brian Vimmer, is that how he says, John, you're the world's, you just did that video with Brian Sauer on Under the Boardwalk. You're the world's biggest Brian Vimmer expert at this point. Apparently not, since I didn't even remember he was in that movie. <laughs> um, Brian Vimmer and that subplot, that stuff is terrible until Josh Mostel shows up. But yes. the, Brian, Brian Vimmer is, is so bad in this film. He is so cap- incapable of being an actor that he actually, his scenes remind me of like, um, like, a, like a full motion Sega CD video game. Mm. I might have to go away again soon. What? Mm. what? I might have to go away in a couple of days. What? Well, David, I can't believe that I'm hearing this. You've just been away for two weeks. You're gonna turn around and leave again? Why don't you and Samantha come with me to Texas? There we go. Come with you to Texas? Yeah. How can I go to Texas? Have you seen this house? It's totally upside down. Yeah. What about Samantha, Dave? She just started kindergarten. She learned how to spell dinosaur today. Sweetheart, this is a new account, and it is extremely important. It's for my new boss, all right? Well, when were you going to tell me about it? (laughs) After you got me in the sack. 
Hey, now that's not nice. Son of a bitch. Hey! 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 I have busted my ass to keep this job. All right? They fired a third of the goddamn staff, and you know that. My God, Cassie, this is for my new boss, and when she says go, I go. They remind yes. you know what I'm talking yes, about. Exactly. He seems like he's in like one of those Sega CD. Yeah, exactly. Or well, not that like Isle of the Isle of the Dead. Night Trap. Exactly. Uh, Night Cowboy, Cowboy McCree. That exactly. It, it, the aesthetic of those games is very similar to the aesthetic of uh LA theater. And oh. LA theater is truly terrible. And it's some of the most amateurish acting you'll ever see. I've seen a few plays in LA and totally it's bizarre. They're like, these are like psychotic plays, like with psychotic actors doing things where they can't even or eat food properly. They can't order at a <laughs> restaurant. They can't, they can't be, they can't have natural conversations. It's like one person's way up here acting completely over the top another guy is just doing his thing he's leaning down he's yeah i'm seeing a wannabe james dean it's just like <laughs> a cacophony of acting and i feel that's i feel like danny houston as a director just wanted every actor to do their own thing as much as possible and just go yeah. with it because he he doesn't want to be the boss he just I'll wants you, just do your thing i'll tell you the level of acting though for me uh, makes it me think of a Tales from the Crypt episode more than anything. Brian Vimmer and, oh, yeah. and Sarah and Mary and Sarah are just like the two leads they would have in a classic Tales from the Crypt episode. Yeah, but a Tales if from they the had Crypt- done a movie version, you know, of like the supernatural ones that they ended up doing, they did a straight from the TV show adaptation into a movie. It would be something like The Maddening. Tales from the Crypt could do this whole story in 20 minutes, have the fight at the beginning, Mia Sarah takes off. The cop, the sister, the investigation, the three beats of the gas station. Like, have you seen? You're starting this to get on the right wavelength. Now think, I want a Tales from the Crypt episode extended to unnecessary and impossible length. That's the that's the vibe you've got to be on for this. Think of it as if they took your least favorite Tales from the Crypt episode and stretched it as far as it would go. And in the spaces, as it pulls into stretched out putty string, they inserted Burt Reynolds as Roy Scudder. Now you're on the right page for this movie. And we have to shout out one of the best Tales from the Crypt episodes, stars William Hickey, directed by Arnold yes, Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger, yeah. That's a classic. Body, the body changing episode. You know what they would need to do, though, to make it a full movie? They'd have to do a little padding, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, but like EC Comics would just crush the editing. I mean, those guys. I don't know. I think I, I mean, I love certainly love EC Comics. This is trying to go off into a different area than the EC Comics. The EC Comics solutions to the script in this film are the easy, obvious solutions. There's a right, lot right. of movies in the EC Comics knockoff genre, either directly or or now. There's an entire generation of people trying to do their own cheese ball, low-budget horror films that go too far. This movie, by staying in V.C. Andrews territory, is genuinely unpleasant, genuinely un- indefensible, which I think there's something special about that in the era of sort of prefab harmless 
cult material. This movie has a shot of a dead decomposing baby in it that is not played as a jump scare, that is not played for laughs. That's just like, there's that baby he murdered, you know? And that's truly remarkable. It's truly a crazy thing to see. I feel like the things that hold this movie back are the basic mechanics of thrillers, which is the cop investigation, uh, the the little clues the husband would find to reach to Say, reach his all way that to stuff. All that stuff is as good as anything in Psycho. That has doesn't have that's not set at the Bates Motel. I'm serious. I like agree. all the stuff that but, nobody gives a shit about in that movie. It's as good as the stuff that nobody gives a shit about in the maddening. You so you're saying the maddening is the same level as Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Yes, and let me throw better. this. Wait, let Fucking me throw better. this. Let me throw this out there. Let me throw this out there. This screenplay was written by Henry Sleazar, who was Hitchcock's main ancillary guy. He wrote the majority of Hitchcock's magazine, mystery magazine stories. He okay. edited all of the Hitchcock short story collections that were curated by Hitchcock. And he wrote almost all of the episodes for Hitchcock's TV show. And this movie is incredibly Hitchcocky, And I think John, just by accident, unless he was setting me up to hammer at home, knows that this guy has put all of the stupid bullshit that people don't care about in Hitchcock movies into this movie. It's because he knows they're a thriller. He knows they're just those kind of machinations to move it from point A to point B. And that's not what anybody cares about anyway. This is literally, I don't think it's better than Psycho, but I agree with John that the bullshit in this movie is exactly like the bullshit psycho that nobody cares about that's 66 percent of its running time because it's the same guy who wrote it all he had the hitchcock formula down and he wrote that bullshit and nobody does a better when hitchcock was not being hitchcock and he wanted to slap i'm the big fat scare maestro i approve this on something he would have henry sleazar write it and henry sleazar wrote the maddening so there you go do you, do you at least find the stuff in the house and everything to do with Roy Scudder tense? And did you not feel like a tension in the film at least? No, I felt no? really. <laughs> so for me, I'm a much more visually oriented movie watcher. Yeah. Than, um from a writer's perspective or an actor's perspective, like I'm just looking at the set and I'm looking at the windows and I'm seeing blue light and I'm seeing blue light flash inside a house with lights on. And I'm seeing shadows coming from no, from nowhere. And I'm everything psychological nightmares. Are you not a Giallo <laughs> fan? <laughs> I am a big fan of uh, Argento and Suspiria and movies of that ilk. Um, correct answer. Correct answer. You're not a Giallo fan. You like Argento. That's the correct right. answer to that question. <laughs> Look, I've seen uh, a Sergio Martino movie or two. I've seen... uh, We're talking about worse than Psycho. There you go. Let's see. Uh, John, are we on the record? Jallo sucks. Waste of a genre. Stop trying to force it on me. (laughs) It's got one good director. He's named Dario Argento. Don't even try and sell me on Fulci, which is three minutes of interest and just the most incompetent garbage you've ever seen in your life. If you like... Lucio Fulci, you will love The Maddening because no, it's better than no. any movie Lucio Fulci has ever made. New York Ripper <laughs> is better than The Maddening. A New York Ripper and Don't Torture a Duckling probably are. But yes. I, I defy you to watch House by the Cemetery, 
or or let alone one of his non GMO. House by the Cemetery is pretty brutal. I mean, the guy in the basement is um even zombie sucks apart from one scene. It's a great scene though. It is a great scene. They're throw you know. they're in one room and they're just killing zombies who are walking very slow. It's a very no, no, no. That's talking about the, the shark scene? The shark, shark versus scene? zombie versus topless scuba diver. Everybody talks about shark versus zombie. They forget that it's also topless scuba diver in that scene. That is, a, that's, there's two great scenes in zombie. But I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need to see slow walking zombies get killed. I've been bored before. Okay, you know what movie is similar to this? Have you seen on Burial Ground? On the record. The Maddening better than Hitchcock and Fulci on the record. We're going <laughs> the kings, on the record. The kings of thrillers. The have kings seen, of snooze. Get these guys out of my face. Have you seen Burial Ground? Yeah. That's very similar to The Maddening with the child played by yeah. the adult. See, I think if The Maddening had a child in a wig or an adult, an adult actor playing like a little person in a wig playing one of the children in this movie, that could have really kicked it up a notch for me that it, it's you want it to be weirder you want it to be more strikingly strange and i would say that that for the i want it to be exploitation it's not it's not exploitation it's right, right. it's that vc andrews young adult it's drama yeah it's, it's gothic it's, it's southern gothic it's kind of, it's yeah. more like night of the hunter when they're running when the kids are yes. running around at night backlit it is right out of night of the hunter it's, okay it's, now we're talking it's fairy, it's fairy tale trauma. Which is also is directed is. by an actor. Yep. Famously. Good point. Good point. An actor so, who was not meant to be a director in general for his career. Uh, I think it's exploitation enough that, you know, the little girl who plays Mia Sarah's daughter never was in a movie again after acting yes. in this movie where she gets punched by Burt Reynolds and subjected to all kinds of awful things. It's like, is this what acting is supposed to be? That scene where she has her face painted up by the other girl and is, is in, in her un, in her underwear. Yeah, horrifying. Completely horrifying. And has a yeah noose around her neck. It's uh, <laughs> very upsetting. This is what I'm talking about. This was there's, this is tense stuff. No, it's trauma. There's, it's a it's a traumatizing movie in a lot of ways. Um, and there's a and, stilted matter of factness to it that takes any smirking out of it in a way that that it's not trying to be weird and it's it's not even trying to shock you it's it's a movie that's like when you find out what your weird neighbors are up to in real life because it doesn't have it also doesn't have a director's eye like hitchcock because you're always seeing the characters from them their own perspective which is justified i feel like burt reynolds is constantly justifying his actions angie dickinson is justifying her actions like the villains in the movies are the are the or the misunderstood villains are they're being people they're, they're absolutely not, villains that was a bit of a yeah. joking before let me be on the yeah, record yeah, yeah. but they're being but they're takes apart that empathy, that's a crime there's <laughs> empathy with them whereas like an argento movie or a hitchcock movie it's like they're locking the door then the person's walking up to the door like they're trying to uh, well, actually, there is a door scene with an unlocking. Mia, Mia Sarah is trying to unhinge the door with a... Which is one of the wrench. more horrifying They're scenes because her, pop th- yeah, her thumb nail pops off and it's really gross. It's really fucked up. Yeah, and that also that reminds me of the Argento thing where he talks about how 
you always have people get cut with like glass or razor blades, uh, things or burn that pe- themselves. Yeah, pe- things that people in the audience have experienced, so they know what the pain feels like. So yeah. we've all kind of popped a nail or hurt a nail in some way. So seeing that the pain is more more palpable in that scene, especially because she breaks her nail trying to get the the door hinge out. We've all fucked up a nail trying to pry something out using the nail. You know, we know exactly what that that feels like. Yeah, and at this point in the movie, Mia Sarah is like locked in the house. She's wandering, trying to get to her daughter. Um, it's around this time that Burt Reynolds finds her and and rapes her. Like, it, I kind of Does feel he, it's, this, it's, this it's scene, a little ambiguous in the movie. He chains her to the bed and is going to rape her, but then starts having visions of William Hickey. Yes. So again, this cock blocking ghost. Dad, I feel like it's in the script and they did it. In the book, he does. In the book, wait, 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 guys, guys. This scene is exactly like the scene in Viridiana where Fernando Ray has <laughs> Sylvia Pinnell dress up in the wedding dress of his deceased wife, lays her yes, down in bed, true. takes her shirts off, and then it cuts away right as he's about to rape her. And then the next day you hear, he says, I offended you in thought only. I offended you in thought, but you don't know what actually happens. I think if Boonwell had a chance, he would have intercut a ghost William Hickey in there, kind of, you know, screwing things up. But it's it's exactly like the scene from Viridiana. There's no denying it. He could with you on that. He definitely would direct the shit out of this movie if he had, but he's he could direct the shit out of any script, honestly. But one thing I felt like with Burt Reynolds at this time, knowing him and like on the set of Boogie Nights, having that tension. I feel like he would refuse to commit rape on screen. I feel like he would put his foot down and say like, I know it's in the script. I know I said I would do the script, but Danny, I'm not going to do it. Like, I'm just not going to do that. I mean, to me, it, it seemed to be another case of he's, he's going to do it and gets interrupted by William Hickey. Like he's constantly interrupted by William Hickey. So it's probably, it's probably explained to Bert that way. If you're not going to actually do it, because Ghost Dad right, right. is there to to humiliate you, and so he agrees to do it. I mean, what the fuck do I know about the shooting of this movie? I don't want to know. I just want to experience it. I want to ingest it through my eyeballs. I don't want to overanalyze it. In terms of whether or not there was any actual rape and how influenced he was by Boonwell making this film, you'd have to ask Danny Houston, obviously. I bet he was. I mean, he went to he went to a pretty big film school. Have you have you seen? We didn't talk about it. Have you seen Mister North? John, did you see Mr. North ever? I do, I have, and I know it was supposed to be John Houston's last movie, but uh, he fell ill before he was able to to make it. I've it's, never based, seen it though. it's based on Thornton Wilder, and it's this completely Looney Tunes whimsic comedy starring Anthony Edwards at the height of his power, no less. And it's around Miracle re- Mile time, right? Yes. And it's really, he like has this ability where he electrical shocks people back to health. And that's the plot of the movie. It's like something that like. It's a period movie, right? Yes. They tried to hide that on the video. I remember made it look like it was a modern movie. It feels like somebody convinced them they could do a Tim Burton film is what it feels like in some way. But then it's the guy who made the maddening and it's very, it's very, it's it suffers from a similar um, feeling like who whose idea was this? Which I feel like when you watch the Maddening, you look at every single person involved and you go, who whose idea was this? 
was it was it Andrew Niederman can't be the driving force of getting this movie made whose idea was it to do this was it Burt Reynolds did he see the script was Mia Sarah somehow involved was she talking to her husband Jim Henson's son and he was like do At this the time it was Sean Connery's son oh you're yes. right you're absolutely right <laughs> so this is funny about Mia Sarah watching this I was like Okay, I bet after this, she kind of stopped acting and married an extremely rich person. And I looked up who she married, and it was a little while after this movie, but she did marry Brian Henson, Jim Henson's son, who apparently has a net worth of $150 million, is the heir to the Henson company. So, yeah, she's doing all right. And I'm glad because she's Ferris Bueller's girlfriend. She should have a cool, rich husband. That's uh, Ferris the Bueller is Simone's boyfriend, if you ask me. All right. They were uh, to me, she'll always be Time Cop's girl. <laughs> you know, John, Lieutenant John Time Cop. Uh, time like Cop a- is is Mia Sarah's boyfriend. It's around this. <laughs> this is like the same time as that movie. I think they both are ninety five, but mm-hmm. I think you're right. That's mid nineties. But again, this one was shot, I think, in ninety three, and for yes. whatever reason, shelved for two years before this it actually a- got released. I feel like this is a bad time for horror movies and genre movies. They yes. don't they don't really sure. have they're not being released theatrically anymore. I mean horror. And if they do, time, like John Carpenter's films at the time, they're in there for a week and then they're gone, you know? But just short runs and then nobody goes to see them. They kind of don't know what to do after the trend of the Freddy and Jason sequel kind of thing they don't know what, where to take it anymore they don't know what's scary anymore and it's like until scream makes a shit ton of money they don't have a business model to follow so that's a good assessment yeah i mean they do it's actually this movie actually sort of fits in with because remember that in the late 90s you also had hits with uh i know what you did last summer and killing mrs tingle if that was a hit or not yes but that we're also looking towards the PG-13 horror movies, Valentine, that were more almost that they were these young adult books, YA novels taken and turned into horror films, theoretically for adults, for horror audiences. And that this fits into that trend from that era of almost young YA horror is how you could almost describe it. Also just trying, you know, the Stephen King success, trying to find make VC Andrews and people like Andrew Niederman, the next Stephen King, the next or, gold mine. Yeah. You have Dean Coots with hideaway around the same time. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, yeah. I also feel like there's some silence of the lambs influence on this. Um, like a woman trapped in a house being held prisoner, a lot yeah. of psychological horror. That was kind of like the best, the best horror in the early nineties, probably were psychological horror films yeah another Candy movie man this, yeah another one that this movie would be a great pairing with would be um hider in the house do you know that one the gary Busey oh, yeah movie? i'm aware of it i haven't seen it but yeah that's um that is similar it's like a guy whose career is a little rocky is doing like a straight to video kind of horror movie yeah exactly in fact the girl from that movie the girl the victimized girl plays the evil daughter in the Matt thing. So oh, wow. they even have that connection with each other. That one, is she that, was the good girl. This one, she's the bad girl. If, there's another thing I feel like that's important to the maddening, which is it takes place in Tampa. Yeah. And that's Burt Reynolds home turf, right? Like cop and a half is shot in Tampa, I believe. Yes. Yeah. 
a lot of this was shot on his property on his um yeah <laughs> yes uh, west, it was his thank you his west, west jupiter. jupiter ranch which was previously owned by al capone so in josh trank's capone when he's like shitting his pants and going crazy that's where he was at that time in west jupiter so it's uh so maybe got re- a little bit of that capone pants pooping craziness involved as well and and reimagine watch the maddening and reimagine Josh Trank's Capone happening on this set and on this film. That's one thing that I was watching it when I was thinking about this time, because John told me that, that it was Al Capone's former house. Anytime you see like the real houses of people, you're like, that place fucking sucks. Like my parents' house is nicer than that. Of course. <laughs> like why Capone lived here? That's garbage. Like I can't believe that Burt Reynolds was living on this crummy, you know, like just, just, totally unimpressive west jupiter ranch well, they bl- he blew his money also he's getting divorced from lonnie anderson at the time that's very expensive for him so this is a paycheck movie and this sure. is definitely this is just a lot of people taking the money and running and doing whatever they, whatever shtick they kind of feel his heart i, I feel is like more in it they're yeah. bleeding into this movie they cut their veins and they're bleeding into this film I feel like Burt Reynolds is giving it his all in a way that if you look at the other films from the same era, which are cop and a half type bullshit, it's weird how intense and invested he is in it. I feel like somebody did convince him he was making Cape Fear, which is like a neighbor to Night of the Hunter, that you're going to be going around in the swamp hunting somebody down that he thinks in the original Cape Fear. Yes, Cape Fear is very similar. And, um, but the thing is, the fact that he's shooting it on his own property and that he's sleeping in his own bed, making his own coffee, and then just walking on set and doing it. I get it. that. I get that. That's a very Burt Reynolds thing. And again, <laughs> I'm not a I'm not a super fan, but my impression of Reynolds when he's in his smirking, breaking the fourth wall, hanging out with his buddies on set kind of heyday, that he's a real lax movie star. He's just having a good time. Whereas the maddening, even though he's going home every night and sleeping in his own bed, he's still bringing this really intense, crazy performance every single day. This now, is not, you, I mean, this does not seem to me like a Burt Reynolds performance. Well, not just because he's the villain, but because he's off the fucking. He's good. On this one. He's always good in bad movies. That's yeah. his thing. Like you could watch those canon movies. And there's like he was doing like one a year and he's just knocking them out. Like, have you seen Heat? Yeah, of course. Written by William Goldman. I mean, that's he's actually good in certain scenes in that movie. The gambling scene in the middle is actually I mean, he feels like he's putting his heart and soul into that. And then the end of that movie is him he, doing home alone tricks and murdering fools on a construction site. But is he he's shouting the, the name of his dead baby into his wife's face? That's the question. He's he's the movie star who I would be most hard pressed to name a great film he's been in. I, I'm not sure he ever made what, a cannonball great... run too. I mean, it's, <laughs> there's stuff that's like, that's like semi tough is interesting. Uh, at long last love is interesting, you know, but I don't, I don't know if any of these are, are actually find their way to be a I... great movie. Yeah. Sharky's machine is fine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I love Stick? Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. I've seen Stick. I turns out I'm a bigger Boost Reynolds fan than I than I thought. That's the uh, that's the one based on the Elmore Leonard, right? Stick. Yes, Stick is pretty insane. That's a, that definitely a shot in Tampa. 
definitely like him on his home turf. Um, yeah, he's a weird movie star. Um, oh, I guess people love Boogie Nights. I guess I guess some people would be like, "That's the great movie he was in." Although that he hated Boogie not Nights for me. Hey he man, I'm Bo- with I'm with Bert. Man, you don't have to sell me on it. But um, and also on Boogie Nights, he didn't like being. He didn't like. He didn't like being not treated like the most important movie star in the room. That was yeah. the main tension between him and P.T. Anderson. And I think like on this movie, in The Maddening, he's being, Bert, you're the king. You're giving me gold. You know, Danny Houston's just like, I'm just happy to watch you do whatever, Bert. Like you're, you're delivering. Like there, I got to say that there is something about this, this ramshackle quality of this that is what is appealing about it to me. That this is a movie that I, I think Burt Reynolds hopping out of bed you know, making his own coffee, going through his own fridge as they're doing the walkthrough for the day. There, There is something about the very ramshackle quality of this movie that is part of the appeal to me, that that adding slickness to this movie um, obviously makes it more tasteless. You know, if you try and do a good version of this movie, it just becomes more and more insanely tasteless, uh, which is... I, I feel like the the shambles of it make the tastelessness of it appealing to me in some way that that it's ramshackle quality allows it to not to, well, <laughs> to the both slick have version, an impact and not have an impact. Well, exactly, because you know? the slick version of this movie would be like a Gore Verbinski or a Neil Jordan no, I think it'd be like, like I think it'd be like an A twenty an A twenty four, like takes itself too seriously. Elevated horror film, I think, is the slick yes, version of this movie. But you I, don't want it to be. You, you the don't 90s, want the guy though, who made The Witch in the Lighthouse making this movie. He's like I, the last dude you want near it. Well, he would be a. They would be oppressively directing it. They would direct the shit out of it. They would be controlling everything. Right. Yeah. That would be their thing, and then. But isn't there like like the Ring remake by Gore Verbinski? Isn't that like, yeah. I could see an expensive version of this movie in the 90s, like a DreamWorks produced version yeah. being dark and having really intense color palette and being... Um, you wouldn't just see dry, the, you wouldn't see the de- you wouldn't see the decaying baby's corpse. You just no. wouldn't. No, you would not. And you, it would be, you wouldn't see the little girl beating up the other one and leading her around by a leash and telling her to dig up the dead baby. All of that would be gone from this. The sort of depravity of this movie, which this movie is incredibly depraved, but I'm able to be lighthearted about it because of the the low budgetness of it it's like spider baby it's horrifying but the low budgetness of it gives it a charming quality yes. to the horrifying qualities of it plus danny houston i think is encouraging every actor to do their thing he's like bert you want to do this keep yeah. push it you want to feel this way like keep pushing it angie dickinson i love how you look yeah you want to do your makeup and hair that way I'm sure Josh Mustel picking up that sandwich and taking a bite was an improv, right? Oh, yeah. Those gas right. station attendants, he's encouraging them to come up with a fake Aussie riff to do together. I think yes. I think you're exactly right that every actor is being told you're the... You're, I think, that, converse to what you're saying, every actor, when Bert isn't on set, being told you're the biggest movie star on set, you're the most important person on this on this film, 
in all scenes. You know, I unquestionably the sister and Brian Vimmer were told that, you know, I think that people were encouraged in some way to just workshop the hell out of their scenes and like, let's come up with something more interesting. Let's take this a little further. I think that's true, which is one of the things that gives it a unique flavor. If you watch a ton of exploitation films, most of them have no personality whatsoever. Most of them, nothing oh. interesting happens in 90% of them. This movie because is is overburdened with too much personality at inappropriate times. Most exploitation movies are just about getting through the day. Yeah. You know, we have we have this many scenes, we have this much time, we have this much light. We got to get it done. And it's just like which is let's just get through it, okay? <laughs> but um you know who I you know who I think would be an interesting director for this movie would be Stuart Gordon actually. Because I think like From Beyond has a similar kind of vibe of being in a house, working with a group of actors, having a dramatic kind of flair, not focusing so much on slick visuals. Although I'm not to say that movie isn't slick looking, but like that kind of. I, I think it taps into the Stuart Gordon. Because it could bit. be a play. I, th I, think it, I think it makes right? me think of his lower budget films like King of the Ants, you know, as an example, where. You can see the seams, you know, you can see the bad acting, but it's confident. It's confidently made. And it's, it has, uh, Chris said, a lot of personality, just a lot of things going on yeah. where, you know, there's it's stuff you want to laugh at, but at the same time, there's an incredible tension where you don't know where the little girl is. You don't know what he's capable of. And just no. anybody who just, you know, happens to stop at a gas station and end up locked in somebody's house in the middle of the day I love the progression of politeness, you know, when she comes into the house and she's trying to just, okay, these people are a little bit weird, but I'm just, you know, they it's said- It's very I funny phone. games. I'm just it's, waiting. Yeah. Oh yeah, yes. yeah, very happy, sure. I, I love stuff like that. And I think that, yeah, I think that there's a craftsmanship to that. I think it could be a Stuart Gordon sort of craftsmanship attributed I to- th that. I think Stuart Gordon's movies with the exception of Castle Freak are all too fun. I think Stuart Gordon makes entertainments mainly. Yes. He doesn't make spiritually disturbing Ed Edmonds? movies. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, the, yes, you can David find Mamet's, a few. That's the David Mamet one? Yeah, that's yeah. the the William H. Macy yeah. Dark Knight of the Soul one, is, which is yeah, a good movie. Um, but that's, you very well know that Edmund is an outlier. I know what you mean. His, I know what you mean. <laughs> no, yeah. even King of the Ants, though, is yeah. a I, lot darker than you expect. It has that Stuart Gordon feel, though, of like coming from a drama background, working with actors, really having yeah. actors push their character and like having an ensemble kind of feel. The absurdity of being locked in the room is a lot like Stephen Ray being stuck in the, the windshield and stuck. Yes. Right. That sure. kind of absurdity of what are you doing? Why aren't you letting me out of here? You know, but, I don't understand I, what's happening. I like that so much of this movie is utterly humorless. I like that there's no leavening of it with with knowing humor. Well, Not even knowing- They but literally kill the comic Josh movie. The, 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 well, no, I was getting ready to say, there's two different movies here. The one that's from a different universe with Josh Mostel, anytime it cuts to pastel world, that stuff has a bunch of comedic shit in it. That's fine, it is whatever. That's not the part of the movie I'm interested in. You know, and I do like I, I like that it's not uh, 
It's not doing what Hitchcock does in Strangers on a Train of making the villain into a charming rascal that you root for just a little bit because he's having such a good time. It's not doing that with Roy Scudder at all. It's not trying to make that stuff fun or funny. And it's not even doing the joke, the psycho joke of when the car won't go down into the mud at first and you go, oh, and then it sinks, and that's kind of funny. That's a funny right, scene right. as much as it's a tense one. There's it's no relief of tension in this movie. Yeah. There's no, yeah. the tension is never released. It just keeps upping the ante, and it kind of feels like you're so. I'm sorry. So the movie has tension, you're saying. <laughs> just checking. Obje- objection. Objection. <laughs> it's a, well, uh, there's no release of tension. It keeps upping the unpleasantness. <laughs> I would say I you don't know. take it back. Too much tension. I don't. No, no, no. I don't. I don't find this well, movie I, tense. I find it unpleasant, and I think you know, that there's an accumulation of unpleasantness to it. That that well, I it's also that I that I adore. It's that thing of like a slick thriller guy, director guy would just be like, "Let's just add a joke here. Let's just add a button here. This is too tense." Like they would. But they don't do that. They don't, they're not going for a formula. I definitely appreciate a director who gets out of the way. You know, I mean, I think when you said Neil Jordan, that was another good observation. His horror films from the 90s, like Interview with the Vampire and In Dreams, have a slickness that is a detriment to the movie. You know, when he has to kind of show a, a, a classy director thing, like having the statue with the eyes that move is a, a moment that I always think of as like, yeah. let me just take away, let me just move away from here to show you a cool thing that I thought of over here. And I think that the maddening is good because it's not like that, because it doesn't have that distraction of, let me just point out that I had a really great idea on how to shoot this movie. <laughs> Let me ask you something. Do you think there's John Huston influence over this movie? Yes, because I think John Huston, though, somebody, if they weren't paying attention, his movies would dissolve like a water droplet on a sugar cube. And I think that this movie has that quality of its, the sugar cube did not get quite enough water on it to completely dissolve, but it sort of halfway dissolved. It's this malformed thing, this movie. That's what I really like about it. I think John Huston, similarly, you watch some of his movies and he just clearly stopped giving a shit at some point. I, yeah. I don't think John Huston rarely went into movies not giving a shit, but at, it's clear in a lot of them, he would just give up in one way or the other. You know, I think it would be an interesting thing to take out Angie Dickinson and put in Susan Terrell, right? From his, Ooh, his oh, film, of course. Well, Fat City. Well, Baker, Nightmare Maker, right? Right, right. She's that would that be way. interesting to see if that would improve the movie or not. Because I do I like Angie Dickinson's quieter performance in this, her own saddening, as it were. But uh, <laughs> I, I think that if you got someone really extreme like Susan Terrell in there to match Burt's already high level of craziness that could be an interesting or if you went super demure and put somebody like shelly duvall in that role you know of course yeah Mm -hmm. would also be the problem is angie jickinson's just like hey i'm pretty her regular wife yeah her glamorousness well she's like i'm a regular wife in uh a florida condo like i should be i should not be living in this like ramshackle house covered covered with weeping willows. I should not be wearing makeup every day and having a tan and wearing bright clothes. She needs, I feel like, yeah, if she had a little more of a shut in vibe, that would, 
she doesn't look much like a Georgina. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing is the whole show. He's the whole show here. Of course. And watching this twice, there's one thing I was really missing. And I think it would really enhance the movie, which is talking about the two worlds. um, Burt Reynolds should be at the gas station for the second and third scene. He should interact with Brian Vimmer. He should interact with Josh Mostel as the at because it's like look him look, being the gas station guy. He's a it, big shot gas station owner. They don't just hang around running the day-to-day when you're a big time gas station owner. You know how those the, guys are. But that's <laughs> but yes, and that's but that's a gimme for a like a scene. Just have Burt yeah. Reynolds. First, he tricks Mia Sarah to going, and then now he has to cover up the lie. He has to be he has to interact with her husband he has to interact with the police well they do at the garage but yeah they have it in the scene at the house yeah he's in the garage at his house yes yeah okay so let's talk about we got to talk about the big climax let me just say i really appreciate watching this twice when you hated it the first time you watched it william (laughs) i watch bad movies it's it's a process of indoctrination and he will submit after our three-day the maddening retreat being held in Poughkeepsie, New York basement. Third time's a charm. But that's the thing. It's an inch. It is undeniably an interesting movie. It's made by Danny Houston's father, Sean Houston. It's this is not um, lazy. Okay, it takes a lot of work to make a movie like this, and the work is kind of unfocused and kind of bizarre. But these are real. It's, It's a monument to inscrutability more than a lot of movies are. You know, a lot of, a lot of, I watch a lot of bad exploitation movies and you watch it and you have, you have the impulse of like, what the hell was anybody thinking? How did that get made? And then you realize the answer is some fucking producer thought it would make money. That's the answer to every question on this. You're right that this movie has so much personality to it, that the answer of question of why did this movie end up like this isn't, there was a producer who thought we're headed for the bank with this. That is not the answer to this question on this movie. It's much more inscrutable than that. It's a movie that really is like a monument to some fucking alien intelligence. You know what I mean? This thing is the monolith in the desert where you're like, I don't know what to do with this. I want to hit it with a bone, but it's going to transform my life. I think it's also just trusting the people to make a movie. And like, as a producer, you're like, I'm giving you this money. You're going to deliver me a movie, right? And it's that there is a the feeling of watching this movie is the feeling of watching a horrible play that immediately goes off the rails, but you can't look away. And it's a very common feeling because I I did um, UCB improv for years. So I've seen improv. So you're familiar with cults. Yes. And I've seen I have seen shows like there's a thing, an improv game called a mono scene. It's a half hour scene. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you, what you have to do is you have to start very I'm slow. out. Yeah. You have to start very slow and build a foundation and not let it get too weird immediately. Right. And I've seen train wrecks that are horrible within, you know, three lines and they're stuck and they can't fix it and they have to go with it. And you're, I watched this one improv model scene about the first Thanksgiving with pilgrims and Indians. And it's like oh, no. one of the, it honestly made me quit improv because then I was like, because <laughs> I realized I was like, I could just go to New Beverly and watch, at least I'll watch a shitty movie that is edited or is written. Yeah. I could just watch a shitty movie instead of watching a shitty improv show. 
So the feeling of a play off the rails and the actors are kind of left to their own devices is a very, it's, it, that's the feeling of the maddening. Can I, can I ask you guys, he comes home, his wife has left. She's boiling his ties right before he notices the boiled ties. He says, that's a joke. It smells like a Chinese laundry in here. What the fuck does that mean? See, that's like an old man thing. It's that like Joseph von Sternberg's autobiography, you know, like things I did in a Chinese laundry or something like what? This is like a term. That's like a term from a hundred years ago, right? Sure, but what do they smell like? Boiled ties? Well, she also it's says one the of house those is- things. It's one of those things I don't understand anything about it except that it's racist. That's <laughs> yes. it. Well, she said we can't. I can't leave the house right now because yeah. the house is upside down. And then yeah. you see what the house is like. It's just. It looks like a PA. They're like, yeah, yeah. We have five minutes. We got to make the house look messy. And he's just. Okay, there's some cups on the counter. There's some uh, canvases thrown over some doors. There's a ladder in the kitchen. There's just a ladder in the kitchen. Well, they're clearly doing some remodeling. The house is upside down. Right. Much like a Chinese laundry, you know. Every time you go into a Chinese laundry, there's... It's uh, that... There's that smell. Well, ties are boiling. That's the Chinese laundry, right? Much like... Oh, they just... When you go to a Chinese laundry, this is probably something John Houston told Danny. He's like, when you go to a Chinese so, laundry, tie, ties are boiling makes it sound like a genocide joke. <laughs> they just boil your clothes. They don't bother to actually wash your clothes. You know. Back then, everything smelled like a Chinese laundry. <laughs> um, Dad yeah, would say it all the time. You know, my only my only real complaint, I have no complaints about this movie. I accept it how it is in my heart. My only complaint is that uh, I despise seeing men in boxer shorts and neckties. This is something that oh, that's I a find brutal scene. more repulsive. It disgusts me more than anything in the world. And I didn't realize it till I was watching this movie. And I saw that and I was like, "This, I fucking hate this. I fucking hate when a guy is in boxer shorts with a necktie. It makes me want to puke. Yeah, the husband, Brian Wimmer, he tries to, he does this very contrived thing where he takes his shirt off, but leaves his tie on and then tries to seduce his wife, Mia Sarah. And it's very uncomfortable to watch. That stuff's weird. But then when he comes to to rescue her and she's completely drugged and addled and he says, look, it's the tie, like shows her that he's wearing the tie is a nice moment, you know, that he, to bring her back into reality to make her laugh a little bit in this horrible situation. So I'm willing, I'm willing to bet Henry Sleazar came up with that touch. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's like uh Janet Lee hanging out at the beginning of psycho, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. Why doesn't he kill him when he throws him in the well? I think is what we all want to know. Why doesn't he do the uh, Richard <laughs> Boone thing from uh, the tall T <laughs> where he throw the whole family <laughs> into the well. He, he lands. Okay. He lands on his neck. So it's completely fine. The set of the, there's a, yeah, when he, Brian Wimmer goes down into the, uh, well, the set is, he's basically inside a 15 foot, slightly curved wall of a room. Like it's, it looks like the world's biggest well that he's got thrown down inside of. And it's very bright and he's able to stand and he's able to climb up like, um, Stallone and cliffhanger. Yeah. He He just crawls up. 
he just climbs out. That's the power of love, my man. I hope you experience it someday. (laughs) He doesn't even have a broken leg. There's no. He does. He makes the splint with the duct tape and the tire iron and shit. Oh yeah. Okay. You know what? Of course he has to. He's gotten hit by the. He landed on his neck. He's gotten hit by the adrenaline. He's seen his daughter's doll. Uh, This put this. You need me to give you a roadmap? Of course he's climbing out of that well. Speaking of which, is this not a movie that's secretly about uh, a little girl learning to to put away childish things, like the love of an imaginary friend transposed into a doll that at the end is ceremoniously dropped into the well? I did think it was interesting that she had an imaginary friend and then William Hickey is the imaginary friend of Burt Reynolds. There you go. It is. It's about a doll named Annabelle, so I think they should sue. (laughs) <laughs> that was also interesting about a creepy doll named annabelle that had to be they must have known right uh, who that, must have known annabelle's based on a team? real story yes that's oh. what i'm saying they must have named the doll james because they knew about no no in the maddening they must have known about what are their names the, the psychic the they have a name the amityville, the amityville couple the, the couple Patrick wilson from the conjuring yeah uh uh Frank Con Stallone, artists, Frank, their names are. Frank, Frank and Mary Stallone. That's their name, right? <laughs> I'm going to go with the Richards. How's that sound? Richards, yes. The beloved cinematic movie couple, the Richards. Now describe the climax of this movie, because I think this is the highlight of the film. I think it's, it is always great when a movie ends with its best scene. And I felt this was the best scene in the movie when Brian Wimmer Makes it makes his way to Mia Sarah's bedroom. Take it, John. Her. Describe it. <laughs> makes his way to the bedroom. She's tied Reynolds up. Is, Reynolds has got everybody covered with the shotgun. Right. But what what happens? Shotgun and handgun. Right. Right. The, he has right. Six, yes. Because he has the handgun with six bullets. But Angie and... Dickinson has to show up. <laughs> And everything comes out and we find out that he was in love with the sister and murdered the sister and her daughter. This is not just a case of a forgivable strangled baby. This is in fact (laughs) multiple homicides. So he sees William Hickey in the wheelchair at the same time. Poor Angie Dickinson. Angie Dickinson falls into the wheelchair. Poor Georgina happens to come into the wheelchair. And he blows brutal. He shoots her six times with like, Thinking she's William Hickey. Yes. He wants to be shooting William Hickey. He's trying to shoot the ghost. His father. It's heavy shit. Instead shoots his wife that he had cheated on or lusted in his heart after her sister. And they want to ask him where's Chicky Ross at this point. Chicky Ross has had his throat cut from ear to ear. Doesn't happen in the book. He survives in the book. (laughs) Oh, much like The Shining. It's a very similar. Um, Exactly. Chicky Ross, played by Josh Mustel. Better than except- The Shining. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry, go on. <laughs> Chicky Ross, played by Josh Mustel. I feel like we didn't get enough of him in this, but I feel like he, whenever he was on set, he's like, I could just take over this fucking movie. Like, I can be the most charismatic person in any scene I'm in. It's like- funny. He plays it like he's Cary Grant. He plays it. No, he plays the scene yes. like he's like he's Bruce Willis for real. Like I'm just coming in. I'm the most charming guy in here. I'm in control of every scene. And it's crazy to see him 
play the scenes like that. You think you cast him like a, a big, fat, goofy looking guy as the comic relief who's going to like, you know, and the script is written that way, like he eats a candy bar, you know, but he plays it like he plays it like he's the coolest motherfucker in this movie. Like there's going to be a whole spinoff like he's Benoit Blank up in here, you know, he's and like, I think. He, he'll never get to play a cop or he did play one more cop. And I think in another movie, but he's like, I'm going to play a cop and I'm going to play him really well, even though I should never play a cop. No it's one great would Good for him. It's a great choice. And it's really, it's really fascinating to see again. It's like the movie's overload of personality. It's hard. I would not describe it as this great decision that the movie makes in order to be the best possible movie it can be no it's operating according to a different value system that's beyond my understanding and that's one of the things that i think works good in it and i think no, that's another go ahead oh wait i think that's another element of plays where you're without a really bad where you go like oh this one guy just has charisma and it's just nailing it even though the other person in the scene is kind of confused or um, I mean, plays are bad. I don't know what's theirs to be said in defense of them. <laughs> plays another are thing play that I enjoy, yeah, Sorry, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say another thing that I like that they really they go out of their way to set up is that their last name is Osborne, and that's why yes. the gas station attendants remember yes. them because they love Ozzy. But when they decide to rock out Ozzy style, they obviously don't have like copyright. Yes. copyrights to the song so it's just a generic sort of like guitar. well they do like the first two they, notes they, of iron man so you think they're like and you're like wait what <laughs> you wanted me to think of iron man and then you did even them that was too close what i did yeah those guys are great because there's no need to have two gas station attendants because yeah. you notice one of them is just repeating the other one's lines Thing. What she said, where she was going, anything like that? She was running late. That's why Mr. Uh, Scudder told her to take old Highway 50 instead of the main highway. That's right. It's a shortcut, you know. You don't need a map. Go down here to, uh, there's a sign that says Turkey Creek, and then you turn right. Yeah, there's, there's a little creek. sign down there. Yeah. Don't Turkey take Creek, the driveway just before. Just go at, Turkey and, Creek and go right. Turkey Creek and go right. Just take the sign. You'll see the railroad. And he's not saying anything differently, and he's not bringing anything else. He was, it's like Danny Houston couldn't decide which actor to pick and he's like i like both these guys why don't we just have both of them be the character i did notice at least one of them used to be like a technician on john houston movies he's probably like good buddies with Je with danny you know i think it's probably why he's on the set he was a technician on john houston he was probably the guy who got john houston his weed and was like friends with danny houston for that reason can i do any more speculative character assassination on this episode i I think it, this movie invites it, you know, like <laughs> they put themselves out there like this. They're, this movie is like, it's like Kennedy driving down the main dragon Dallas with the top down. It's like, you guys are putting yourselves out there. You're just asking to be sniped, you know? They're Kennedy Josh in Mostel, this scenario? No, Mostel is, he's like, he's covered. He's like, I don't know what these people are doing but I'm going to wear a cover. Burt Reynolds is really putting himself out there. I mean, they're not taking any precautions. They're not. What I'm trying to say is they're not considering what the world is going to do to them once they put this movie out there. Critics, audiences, their friends, their families, their agents, they must have all thought, 
how did this, like, how did we let this happen? How did you, Bert, how did you let this happen to you? How did you end up here? You were a king of the world. You were the number one movie star in the world. How I guarantee you, you can find in the 90s another Burt Reynolds story movie that is even more of a what the fuck were you thinking with this movie? <laughs> you think so? He doesn't. Gotta he, be. No, he just does mm. stuff like, oh, Mad Dog Time he's in, which is a much more what the fuck who thought this would be a good idea. Talk about bad theater. Have you ever seen Mad Dog Time? Sounds familiar. It's it's just the worst. It's really that is the worst oh, movie you will ever right, say. Right, right, right. Trigger happy. I'm going Larry, through the list. Larry Bishop. Of, of I'm going through the list of movies you've done in your podcast, and I already see about ten that are far worse than this. <laughs> Murder by Numbers, Hideaway. Give me a break. Lady Terminator. Lady Terminator is fucking awesome even even you know like rapid fire is like fine rapid fire is if you go your whole life without seeing rapid fire you'll be okay robocop 2 this movie is better than robocop 2 it's really night, deadly night come on santa claus the movie ernest saves christmas <laughs> this is this is a completely <laughs> so nightmare I'll give you santa claus, i'll give you santa claus the movie Cop and a Half was your first episode. These are all, this is better than all of these movies. Cop and a Half is very similar. You know the story of Cop and a Half, right? Like the co-star Ray Sharkey? No, I do not know anything (laughs) about Cop and a Half. Have you seen Cop and a Half? I saw it on an airplane. One of the first flights I took as a a youngster, it was the in-flight movie before there were even like TV individual selection things. John, have you seen Cop and a Half? I've never seen it. You guys. Not even half of it. You think the maddening's nuts. Cop and a Half is more, it's just way more insane. Also directed by an actor, Henry Winkler. Yeah. Last, Last Burt Reynolds starring studio movie. It's about a child who witnesses a murder by a mafia don. Yeah. And then becomes the witness, right? It's very similar to... You know, witness. any other thriller. Yeah, witness. <laughs> it's witness. We talk about that. Yes, it's witness. So this guy who plays the mafia don, Ray Sharkey. I looked up this actor. I'm like, who is this actor? He seems weird. There's something about him I'm intrigued by. What happened to him? It turned out this guy, while Cop and Half is being released, a story is out in the newspaper that he had had sex with like a hundred women while infected with HIV. Oh shit. And it really puts a damper on Cop and a Half once you know that's going on. So <laughs> that ruined the movie for you. I didn't ruin. I I you don't want to see Cop and a Half ever again based on <laughs> what you've just told me. I'm just like laying on my sofa watching Cop and a Half, kind of looking at Wikipedia, like who is this guy? He's funny. What else is he in? Oh, he had HIV. He had sex with hundreds of women. He's infected multiple women. And then I read every no review such news of- came out about William Hickey ever. But let me just say, you watched Murder Rock, which is probably the worst movie I've ever seen. I love it. It's, but you understand that it's terrible. The way you feel about Murder Rock is how you should feel about the maddening. But like I said, I, I'm a more visual person so the like i can watch that movie or any shitty 80s fulci movie 
and just be like, oh, I, I'm into this. This has style. Yeah, because every 15 minutes, there's a semi-interesting shot. That's all it takes. It's not like Fulci's this dazzling stylist. It's like every once in a while, there's an unnecessarily complicated dolly shot in his films. And it'll be for like a dialogue scene. I, I don't find Fulci to be any kind of a stylist. I'm very, I'm very easy when it comes to that kind of style. I mean, that's what it, that's the truth is with horror movie fans, we're very easy. We'll watch, we'll watch anything. We don't care. We'll just sit there and just be like, well, you know, it is, uh, look, I'll watch anything. And I, and all it has to be is a movie for me to like it at the end of the day. This is, I'm very hard on films, but I, I'm pretty sure I've enjoyed every single thing I've mentioned here with the exception of the Hitchcock movies. Uh, you know, Hitchcock uh, is a little, he's no Danny Houston. It's true. It's true. Put he's... that quote at the top of the episode. Absolutely. <laughs> North by Northwest is a very weird movie. It's a very North by bizarre. Northwest sucks. North by Northwest is a boredom bomb set off in audience, unsuspected audiences. North by Northwest is the package at the beginning of, uh, of uh, is it Sabotage, where the bus blows up at the beginning? They blow sabotage up the kid or and the Sabotage It's not Saboteur, because that's the one Dorothy Parker wrote. It must, be, right. it must be Sabotage, where they actually blow up the bus at the beginning. If that is North by Northwest, is a boredom bomb slipped into an unsuspecting audience that blows them up at the beginning. North by Northwest, people see that, and it's the reason they think they don't like old movies, because someone told them North by Northwest is great, and they watch it, and they're like, fuck this, old movies are terrible. Look, I just want to say, I saw North by Northwest at the Castro Theater in San Francisco, a big, giant, one-screen theater. I've been, I've been there. I saw uh, American in Paris on that screen. Anyway, sorry. But but yes, it's, uh, I mean, it was, uh, it worked for me there more than it did at home. At home, North by Northwest is a zero. It doesn't yeah. work because it doesn't make any sense, right? Who's the villain? I defy you to tell me one thing about him. Look, every reel is a set piece. That's the movie. <laughs> That's the movie, right? It's just, they go I to a look, new set. I was so shocked happened. at the end of a Hitchcock movie. He's being chased and then he's hanging off of something. And then, and then the authorities show up right before he's about to fall. Who would have thought a Hitchcock movie ended that way? Who would have seen but, that coming? What a twist. But, but isn't that the power of Hitchcock? Is that you see the bomb under the table you know it's yeah. going to go off. And then the audience is just like, oh, if the bomb's going to go off. The bomb is Roy Scooter. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it what, I, but that's like what most, that's what most thriller directors do, right? They just. What I would of, say is if you have to describe the maddening, it's the bomb that went off. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The bomb is Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds is the bomb. He's going to go off and he goes off. He I was speaking more of its total box office and theatrical and DTV failure. I read but on this Wikipedia, movie went off. Wikipedia says it made $5,000 at the box office, which is pretty decent. <laughs> Who do you think got that check? Who do you think that check think for 5,000 was dead? That had to go directly into some like processing places account that went that went to some accountant who was like you know i never got fucking paid it just went straight to that guy it went to the gas station attendant look when you make art you're not always trying to make money okay you're gonna you're putting yourself out there millions of dollars are invested in a film like this and you get five grand that's pretty decent 
It's true. It's, you divide that up, everybody gets a pack of smokes, and that's just kind of how it worked out. Mia Sarah's got to go marry a rich guy. This movie's made so little money, I had to marry, you know, this fail son layabout. It's like the killing. It's like they're like, we're going to make a movie. This is the plan. You're going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then at the end, all the money just gets blown away. It's just <laughs> all the money's gone. And they're like, no one gets any money. We're fucked. Josh Mustel is in this movie. He's in Billy Madison. This movie is not the lowest grossing Happy Madison film ever made, for the record. What it is? Larson born to be a star. Bucky Larson. Well, you know, that's a special film. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but I can tell it's special. So right, wait, John we still Cruz haven't seen it. We still haven't talked about the absolute best moment of the movie, which is the death of Burt Reynolds. Yeah. He is finally shot, not by Josh Wimmer, but by Mia Sarah. And that's Who's a great engulfed in flames. She whips up the gun in slow motion. It's a legitimately beautiful shot. Not out of place in a Fulci movie. Kind of like thriller, cruel picture. <laughs> this is a rape it's revenge film. It's not super slow-mo. This is a rape revenge film. It is. It is, kind of. It's more like a, a trauma permeates every aspect of its pores. The pores of this movie open like mouths and the tongue of trauma hangs out. She shoots Burt Reynolds with a shotgun. And there's an amazing shot of him flying out the window with the wheelchair behind him and the visible strings are pulling them all out the window. And you then see a dummy fall and then you see Burt Reynolds. You're, you're misinterpreting it. Those are ghost strings. You're supposed to see them. I, it reminded me of Stalker. I thought I can see the, the string on the glass pulling it. This yeah. is a... Uh, very Tarkovsky yes, that shot. Another <laughs> little psychic monkey. Is that there you go? I would say this is not a rape revenge movie. I no, think no, no. That, but there is you know, rape this, and a revenge. This is a getting grabbed by the ankle and pulled into the quicksand of this family of this family unit that is just going straight down to hell and you can't untangle yourself from it. I think one great thing that makes Burt Reynolds and his performance so interesting is that we never know what Roy Scudder wants. You know, he first, it seems like he's kidnapping them for Angie Dickinson to have them around. Right. So she believes that her sister is alive and has returned to them. He's just trying to normalize the family unit. But then later on, he's clearly into her. He clearly like is putting his feelings for the sister, you know, onto her and he wants her. But the father is you know giving him a hard time. He just has he's so mixed up this entire movie. So even though when he you know, has to step up and say, Oh, I've never seen. I don't know idea what they, you know, where he has to cover his tracks. He's very smart, but in general, when he is behind the, the doors inside this house, he's just a huge. He's hugely fucked up. He doesn't know what the hell he wants. To it do. is. I mean, I was making a joke, but it does remind me of Fernando Ray and Veridiana, or uh, yeah. uh, the old man in Diary of a Chambermaid, where you get behind the walls of this house where you're yes. sort of a prisoner, and you're you're subject to the deranged whims of the patriarch that are very inscrutable that he keeps very close to his chest and uh and his sort of perverse desires that he himself is sort of twisting up when he's expressing them in any way or texas chainsaw massacre you know where it's like you're locked inside of this family situation 
Yeah. You got to get out of the house. It's just, that's like, what is the, you got to escape this situation. Secret ceremony, the Joseph Losey movie. Did you ever see oh, I've that? I've never seen it. Very psycho. It's like one of those psychological horror films, a lot of incest, three people yeah. trapped in a mansion, Robert Mitchum, Elizabeth Taylor, Mia Farrow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is kind of a throwback to an older, more literary psychological thriller. Yeah. It's yeah, got it's gothic. yeah, it's very traditional gothic. Uh very traditional. It's gothic in a lot of ways. <laughs> I, very traditional. I, re I revert the very traditional aspect of it. Very traditional with a Burt Reynolds 90s twist. So what would you and guys a, and a horror's 90s twist too? I think you know the gas station lore, which is not from the book, it's invented for the movie. Oh, yeah, is almost taken direct directly from Leatherface, the, the third Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. That kind of a snare, yeah. you know, of the, the friendly guy at the gas station. I guess that's from the original too, where he, but it turns out that he is, you know, part of this family. Yeah. So, like, you guys don't normally give ratings, but what would you give this movie on a five star rating? Because that's something we do at the end of our show. I I would say that I'm not going to give stars. I don't give ordinal rankings to it. I think it's immoral. But I will say that there's nothing better than a big old moon pie, except for the mm. maddening. That's my rating. Rotten Tomatoes many, converted many, to stars. How many moon pies would you give it, though, is the question. Yeah. I, I On a scale of 16 moon pies, I would give it one order of magnitude above 16, whatever that might be. It's off the charts. It's a little bit like eating 16 moon pies in one sitting. I, well, it? exactly. Well, that's John saying you eat too many moon pies, you start to get sick. I'm not sure that's even positive rating. Do you want to be eaten? What would what would an order of it's magnitude on theory. sixteen on sixteen be? I guess it'd have to be something like forty eight. Forty eight moon pies. You don't want to eat that. <laughs> that's that's pretty, that's up there. That's the highest rating of anything that has ever been on this show. Except it'll make you sick and it'll kill you. You'll die from that. Don't do it. Don't watch the maddening. You don't want to die. You don't want to have your worldview broken. Stay it away from the. This is this is my five star thumbs down review of the maddening. I give it a hundred percent for zero okay, percent of the audience. Different question. At what date do you show this movie to a potential boyfriend or girlfriend? Is this first, a first date? First date. Is it Mia Sarah like going on the, the date curve. with? <laughs> if it's, yeah, you're if taking it's Mia, Mia Sarah. Mia Sarah has been. <laughs> Um, I, that, that's that's date one you go you know i'm a really big fan let me show you something special mia i just need to use your phone no mia i have something very special to show you phone's right here and then she grabs the phone and tries to use it as the maddening comes on in the background and she knows she's never gack into the cookie master's arms ever again i would love to First know what you thought there would be my mixtape of her nude scene from the setup just on a loop. <laughs> you what a big fan I am? No, John. Mix, at what point on the state? Wait, it's wait, just John. One scene. You've been you've been with your wife fucking forever, John, right? <laughs> what at what point would you has Jordy seen this? Have you convinced Jordy to see it? The sex tape? Oh, the of course name. she's seen the sex tape. <laughs> she's well aware of everything you've jerked. She hasn't to. seen the maddening, and that's kind of funny because she is a big VC Andrews fan. <laughs> She's read all the B.C. Andrews ones written actually by her. I don't think she's read any of the ones written by Niederman. Yeah, I, I didn't. Sure. 
I didn't show this to my girlfriend. Her tolerance for um, my movie picks has really been um, eroded. I took her to see Barry Lyndon, Stalker. That was strike it. one. Uh, Barry Lyndon, go. strike one. <laughs> she liked Sorcerer. That was the the one movie she really liked that I took her to. So she's got good taste. Thumbs up. Yeah, she likes Tangerine Dream. She doesn't like boring movies. Why? Why isn't she hosting the podcast? No, I'm she just joking. <laughs> Just joke. She would have no tolerance for you two. I I can imagine. Surprise. <laughs> There's a lot of flavor in this soup. I like the maddening so much that my rating system is actually based on it. Like I would give something three out of five maddenings, you know, when mm. I'm talking about a regular movie. When I typed, when I, when I went to do this, when Chris suggested we do this movie and talk to you about it, I went to Google and I typed the and maddening came up automatically. That's how much I love this movie. But let me you ask know, you, William. I saw in Letterboxd you gave this movie a half star. Yes. Have we convinced you to rise that up to one star at all? Or are you I even mean, are I you can, like, it's I a actually, zero now? I was almost at about to raise it to one star last night after the second viewing. But I wanted to write the review even worse the second time as a joke. And the problem with the letterbox is you become performative, you become dishonest, you start playing it up for the audience. But truthfully, yeah, this is a one star movie, guys. I, yes. I've, I've That's never a win. been. That's a win. I've never been smoke. on Letterboxd. I don't understand what it is when people describe it. I, I, I can't figure it's out not what it is. It's not that complicated. They turn what is movie, it? They've turned movies into a video game and you're getting achievement points for watching. Not achievement, but you're like, you're tracking what movies you're watching it's just I know, like imdb reviews right on better movies, like where people write the comments below the movie you do that but the other there's a second element to it that's that is interesting which is it all of these movie fans who log their movies rate their movies it creates this ai hive mind where then you can click on an, an actor or director and then you can see their most popular movie or their, or their highest rated movie and you can kind of get a sense of what your friends are watching. And it's like, when I see a movie oh, like do you, this- Do you like friend people? Like it's a Facebook, you friend people to talk about? like Just your, like film Twitter, it's like okay. the same, it's the same people. It's it's, twi it's film Twitter, basically. And so when I see a movie like this where- Well, get us on there, Cribs. <laughs> you should, the pink smoke should be on there. Um, and also your people should be listening to your podcast, which is- I think very good. Uh, you, you do kind of throw, you threw me in a loop for a little bit when I didn't know that the episodes were purposely out of order. And it's I was not confused. that it's not that they're purposely out of order. We had a bunch that were behind Patreon paywalls and I occasionally release them because, you know, when you put it for the Patreon paywall, like 30 people listen to yes. the episode. Like you're, so it's like we did all this fucking work. So I like randomly release them when we don't have new episodes or when whatever. There's no real rhyme or reason to when I release them, you know. So they just are sort of out of order. With that. And also you have your website, pinksmoke.com. Yes. Which I've been can, reading. Can I ask you, I, the movie I originally suggested for this podcast, which uh, I don't know why I came off of it. Oh, because I wanted, because John was going to be on. Uh, and I wanted to do The Maddening, which I uh, 
he and I love and never have any opportunity to talk about. But the first movie I wanted to do was Landscape Suicide because my instinct was to do something having listened to your show that I really felt like your co-hosts would despise. Did you? Would you have preferred if we had done Landscape Suicide? Have you seen it? Did you watch it in the interim? I'm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This. Um, I've never seen this. I didn't watch it. Um, but it looked interesting. What I appreciate about Landscape Suicide and The Maddening is they were both movies I had never heard of. And I think a big component of this podcast is me throwing out movies that uh, the other two guys have never seen. And I think there's yeah. an inch. It's interesting when it's someone seeing something for the first time and someone having seen something multiple times. But I will say this movie is connected to your guys last. I believe it was your last episode, right? Was it the uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood episode? Was well, yes, Burt Reynolds was supposed yeah. to be in that. Oh, was he supposed to be in it? I know, just know he was uh, on the tribute page of the novelization that just came out. He's one yeah. of the people who he said he dedicated the book to. He was going to play the George Spawn role originally. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. But what's funny is the last... John, you, you say that like you saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I've seen it. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah, yeah. What movie did we do last? I can't even remember. I'm I was going to say I, there's a connection to Young Blood. That was because well, I didn't. <laughs> I haven't heard the new episode. Well, I did The Punisher. I felt like there was a connection to The Punisher '89. That's the last one we re- we recorded. So I think I don't know. I think it was just being. I, I think the that video. they had wanted Lou Gossett Jr. to play Roy Scudder originally. <laughs> I think I think that actually the Punisher 89 and the Maddening are uh is is uh un unfun experiences in a very similar way is that a fair description of them they are both sort of brutally unfun movies that's what i want to emphasize about the maddening is don't think you're in for a fun time when you go to watch it it is not a fun time at the movies which is yeah. which is what i like about it honestly you know you think about the ending where burt reynolds is shot out the window i mean it might i might raise it to one and a half stars because if i had seen this with an audience i think that ending would kill i think it would be a i would love to see the maddening with a sold out crowd. I think it would do very well with a crowd because have you guys only I, seen it by yourself or with friends? I've only seen it by myself and with Mr. John Cripps, but that's, but that's as big of an audience as I see anything with holding hands with JB. I watched cockfighter last night. That's a great movie. It crushed with an audience, you know, I can yeah, imagine. That's awesome. I that was the one the- thing I got to ask Jonathan Demi about. Uh, Chris used to work closely with Jonathan Demi. The only time I got to talk to him was I got to ask him about Cockfighter. Oh, yeah, what's his connection? I thought he might have a connection because Roger Corman, of course, was behind Cockfighter. And then Demi ended up producing Miami Blues, which is also based on a Charles Williford book. Right, so I just wanted to right. know if there was any kind of connection. If he, having worked for Corman, became aware of Williford through him or, you know, there was anything but no connection apparently but i just yeah. thought something to bring up fred fred ward wanted demi to direct miami blues and he said i won't do that but you should have my my good friend george do it so that's how armitage got brought on to miami blues interesting and he also said oh and by the way i read the script i there's an actor you absolutely must cast as uh as fred fringer 
that I just was did in Married to the Mob, this guy, Alec Baldwin, you should absolutely cast him for real. And Gene Hackman was supposed, Fred Ward was supposed to be playing the Fringer role and Gene Hackman was supposed to be playing the Hoke Mosley role. And Fred Ward was like, you're absolutely right. He's so good that they asked Gene Hackman to step away from the movie. And he did graciously. Well, he's a pro. I would love to see Gene Hackman in a movie like The Maddening. It's a shame he's decided to retire gracefully when he yeah. could be leaving on the high note of welcome to Mooseport. <laughs> Where is there to go? Where is there to go after that? You've done it all once you've battled Ray Romano and bested him. Found himself too challenged being the Admiral in uh, what the fuck is that Owen Wilson movie? <laughs> oh, yeah, Behind enemy lines. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> but he's he went, always he, good. He went toe to toe with Romano and was like, I just don't got it anymore. I'm getting blown off the screen by this guy. Who would you say is like who would be the maddening now? I was thinking Bruce Willis could I know oh. he would never he would I wish he would do movies like this, but he sticks to these like straight to video action. Yeah. Movies. yeah, they're kind of like sad reflections of his old career. He, I don't think he would let himself, you know, do a film like this. I'll tell honestly. you who I 1000% do not want doing it is Nicolas Cage. That is the person no, 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 I no, no, don't no, no. want seeing no, no. doing. But he would do it. Roy Scudder. He would absolutely do it. And people would go bananas and they would just they would just love the Nick Cage version of The Maddening. And I love Nick Cage in a lot of things. I actually am as on board with Nick Cage as anybody is. I love him in Color Out of Space, but that I don't. I don't want this movie getting mandyified. Is what I don't want from the maddening. This is this is a left field choice. Tom Tom Hulse maybe. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> I watched that Tom Hulse from Amadeus. Yeah, that would be interesting. But I mean. What has he been up to? What was the last thing you they saw? Don't, they don't they don't make traditionally masculine movie stars like Burt Reynolds anymore. And even when Burt Reynolds was around, he and Eastwood were like two of the last straight up uh, man's man kind of movie stars. And I don't, it's hard to imagine somebody who's crested and headed out of their peak from the past 20 years who was a big time movie star because they're not uh, according, they they don't operate according to the old school masculine ideal that drives so much of the fear and intensity and uncomfortableness of Roy Scudder. You know, that that it, that's just not how masculinity functions anymore, especially plus, in Hollywood. Plus they don't have the acting chops yeah. of Clint Eastwood or Burt Reynolds. Yeah. Where yeah. it's masculine and they actually can act and be movie exactly. stars. You couldn't do it with Charles Bronson, who is a great movie star, but not much of an actor. You know who I could see in a movie like this is Denzel Washington. Yes. That's the best choice. choice. Yeah. I, I think that's, he's kind of at that stage where this is the kind of insane movie he should be looking out for, but he would never do it. He's too careful. Yeah. And you know who else could actually also do it is Samuel L. Jackson could do it, I think, too. And would do it, maybe. And would although, do it. Although, the, although, although the I'm doing Marvel movies all the time now. Oh, but you know, but you know what made anything. me think of it is, oh, this is similar to Black Snake Moan. I think it's like you Terrace. <laughs> Neil Labute would be a good director for a movie like this. Sure. I, I, mean, I yeah, I, I think. If you want it to be bizarre, yeah. I mean, he would, he would make it bizarre. 
He's kind I feel of like lost. I would have said that. I feel like I would have said that when I heard he, he was going to remake the Wicker Man. Though, you know? <laughs> right, right. Uh, Good choice. That'll be interesting. Yeah. yeah, I think I think Denzel Washington with Neil Labute is better than any suggestions I have for it. All right. Well, I guess that kind of wraps everything up. But uh, thanks for coming on, guys. This was, thank you for uh, having us. Very entertaining. I'm glad I can spread the word of the maddening out there for you. Good. Thanks for bumping it up to 15 viewers on Letterboxd or whatever it's at currently. You know, we got to get these numbers up. I'm going to put some clips. I'm definitely going to clip the moment of the ending. The Burt Reynolds out the window. I mean, that is hilarious. Any, any of the William Hickey scenes are very. Very easy te- to get people into this movie. Imagine just like scrolling through Twitter at like 7.45 a.m. And just seeing William Hickey <laughs> just like encouraging Burt Reynolds to... Good re- boy! Yeah. He's really the best supporting actor of the movie, more so than Josh Mostel. Like he really... Yeah. I mean, imagine William Hickey being rolled on to the set because I'm assuming he is in a wheelchair at this point and just nailing it. Like Chris said, he's not that old at the point, you know, he always looks decrepit. Yeah, he's like 62. Yeah, I think he's like 62 when they made this movie. He's he's old, but he's like 10 years younger than my parents, you know, who are far from wheelchair bound. Well, I hope uh, they're nothing like him in this movie. They definitely (laughs) harass me when I'm fucking. There's no question about that. Maybe that's why I identify with this film so much. The perfect, perfect thing to go out on is that line. Yeah. Thank you.